The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we head deep into Transylvania, where the evil Count Dracula has plans to use Victor Frankenstein's experiments to give life to his undead offspring and take over the world. But the Knights of the Holy Order, a secret society which has protected mankind since time immemorial, has tasked monster hunter Gabriel Van Helsing with destroying Dracula and protecting siblings Anna and Belkin Valerius, the last of an ancient Romanian family destined to kill Dracula or else spend eternity in purgatory. Armed with an arsenal of weapons and gadgets, Van Helsing must embark on a death-defying adventure that will take him to the ends of the earth, where he will encounter werewolves, vampire brides, Frankenstein's monstrous creation, and possibly shed some light on his own mysterious past. Join us for more monster action than you can shake a stick at as we discuss Van Helsing. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am! You're insane. I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf! By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. Welcome to the return of the monsters that made us the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios classic monster series. Today we'll be discussing Stephen Summers' 2004 monster mash Van Helsing. I'm the invisible Dan Cologne and joining me as always is my co-host and fellow monster hunter, Monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? Daniel, not only are we sanctioned by the Vatican, but I'm here to reclaim 300 years of memories. Before we get into Van Helsing, we have some exciting news to talk about. If you haven't heard this news, Universal Orlando Resort has announced plans for the Universal Epic Universe theme park scheduled to open in 2005. The theme park will include over 50 new experiences, including attraction, entertainment, dining, and shopping spread across five theme worlds, including Celestial Park, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, Ministry of Magic, Super Nintendo World, How to Train Your Dragon, Isle of Burke, and finally... Dark Universe, which will, of course, be inspired by the universe of monsters. We're back, baby. Per the official description, quote, from the experiments of Dr. Victoria Frankenstein oh. to a shadowy landscape where monsters roam, Dark Universe is a world of myth and mystery, end quote. Oh, man. So I love the concept that they're bringing it back first as like part of a theme park to see how it goes. I think that's very wise. Uh, it's a good brand. I'm glad they're trying to keep that kind of alive, the connection. Mm -hmm. They released mm -hmm. some key art, I guess you would call it. The monsters redesign look really great. Yep. I'm pretty happy with all that. And then, you know, I think this inspired the two of us to start some kind of campaign to send the monsters that made us to the dark universe. We'll be launching our GoFundMe for that next month. Yeah, no, that'd be great if the two of us could somehow get down there to Florida to check it out once it's open. That'd be a lot of fun. But uh, we have plenty of time to prepare for that. I think, what did I say? Yeah, 2025 is when it's scheduled to open. So we still have at least a full year to go before that happens. Currently, there are no specific details 
about what we can expect from the rides and the experiences in the dark universe section of the park. But we should expect to see them revealed in the in the coming months. So yeah. really looking forward to seeing what they've got in store there. Yeah, me too, because theme park rides like roller coasters and stuff are inherently supposed to be scary or get your adrenaline going. And so you combine that with like monster stuff. And then I can just imagine like a roller coaster in the dark with flashing lightning and Frankenstein's monster like reaching out at you or all kinds of crazy modern hologram technology or you know right. animatronics and sure it's going to be pretty cool but I haven't been to a theme park in ages and I think this would get me to try to go I know that some of the characters have still been present at the theme park at Universal Studios in Florida possibly Hollywood you know I follow the Universal like accounts on, on Instagram and I've seen like theme park footage of like a of a guy dressed like Dracula and there's a Frankenstein monster so they have haven't completely withdrawn those characters from the parks. They're still there, but now they're going to have their own section of this brand new theme park experience. Uh, it'll be immersive, which will be super cool. Yeah. Like you, I don't think I've been to a theme park. I've certainly not been to Florida, I think, since my senior trip for high school. We're talking like 20 years. Something interesting is that, you know, they're using the Dark Universe brand, right? Like we thought that was dead. I think you'll see some similarities with this situation and with Van Helsing as we get into the whole backstory with Van Helsing. Oh. You know, you know, this thing that failed once, right? The whole Dark Universe mm-hmm. was this concept that they announced. They put out one movie and it bombed and we haven't heard dark universe since and now they're going theme park route to kind of keep that brand alive yeah so keep that in mind as we get into van helsing okay now before we get into van helsing i do want to put some monster mail up front it's just a short little note i figure we'll we'll just address it right now so if you've been listening to the show if you've been following along with us you know we recently were talking about the scorpion king and you know its connection to the mummy universe we got an email from a listener named william hess he addressed something that we had sort of talked about we are hoping to see the scorpion king evolve into this scorpion monster that we see in in the mummy returns but neither Mike or I have seen these sequels, so we have no idea what to expect. But we had some questions about, like, is this Scorpion King going to turn evil and all of that? William wrote to us and he said, the question of who the evil Scorpion King was is easily explained. Matthias was the first of a dynasty. That dynasty fell after many generations due to the rise of the pharaohs of Egypt as it conquered much of upper North Africa. Its last Scorpion King, a distant descendant of Matthias and the sorceress, that gives us a few different generational eras for the filmmakers to play in. So, By William's logic, the Scorpion King we see in The Mummy Returns is a descendant of the Scorpion King we see in the movie The Scorpion King. They're both played by The Rock... But I think he's suggesting that they are not the same person and that like many years and generations of this line will continue. And so I think that's a fair theory. I like that theory. It's got me a little more excited to watch these movies, especially if they change actors every movie. That will strengthen <laughs> the theory for me. Uh, but I love the concept because I know The Rock's not coming back for the next one, which is a prequel to the one we just saw, which in itself was a prequel to the Mummy movies. But And then I'm interested to see how they write all this out and get it straight. I like that. That settles it for me. I'll take it. Yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot of information about the Scorpion King and the Mummy Returns, right? We just know him as the Scorpion King. 
Exactly. Never said his first name. Barely said it in the movie. Listen to that episode. Like how many times the names weren't said in the movie, but like we found them online. So definitely look forward to that. So thank you, William, for writing to us. As always, if you would like to write to us, you can at the monsters that made us at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. We will definitely read your email on the air. So let's get into Van Helsing. Let's do it. After the incredible success of both The Mummy and The Mummy Returns, Universal was ready to dig up all of their old iconic monsters and reinvent them using a similar formula, hence the hiring of Stephen Summers and the film's action-adventure tone. In fact, Universal was so confident about this project that they planned to create an entire Van Helsing franchise built off of this first movie. But not to bury the lead, Van Helsing was a box office bomb, grossing just $120 million domestically against a budget of $170 million, despite an extensive marketing campaign. And even though it went on to gross $300 million internationally, Universal ultimately decided to pull the plug on the whole thing. They did, however, still release a tie-in video game which I am told is actually not bad. Okay. They also released a 30-minute direct-to-DVD animated prequel, Van Helsing, The London Assignment, which follows Gabriel Van Helsing as he tracks Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde across London. As for what could have come next, here's what I do know. Okay, all right. So a sequel began development before the first movie even opened, and they paid to hang on to the Transylvania sets so that they could be used for future projects. Rumors circulated that a sequel may have featured the creature from the Black Lagoon, but of course, The Invisible Man and The Bride of Frankenstein were also available. In 2004, Dark Horse Comics published a one-shot, Van Helsing from Beneath the Rue Morgue, which pitted Van Helsing against Dr. Moreau. So that's also a possibility. We'll never know, probably, what a sequel actually would have been, but we do know that they were working on it well before this movie came out. They could have gone the Indiana Jones direction and done like prequel or separate adventures because mm-hmm. the characters like we'll get a little I'll get a little more into it anyway but what I do like about the character later he's set up perfectly he can pop up anytime anywhere he's ageless yeah you could create all kinds of creatures for him to go up against about a month before Van Helsing opened Universal also announced that they were greenlighting a TV series titled Transylvania which would have used those same Transylvania sets and would have premiered in the fall of 2004 but two weeks into Van Helsing's run the studio canceled plans for the series any information on the plot to that nothing concrete it sounds to me that this movie came out and almost immediately they were like nope 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 abort and just completely bailed on the entire thing so we were talking about theme parks right so universal studios opened revenge of the mummy in the summer of 2004 as well as van helsing fortress dracula which was a walkthrough experience in which guests would encounter monsters from the movie universal no doubt hoped that this attraction would keep fan interest alive similarly to how Waterworld endured thanks to the successful stunt show at universal studios hollywood now that you say that like what would have been cool was a would have been a nighttime van helsing stunt show do something like that bring it in you know for the late night time because of the themes and the setting and everything that could have been awesome and all like the flying wire work for the monster stuff so van helsing fortress dracula remained open for two years before it closed on november 4th 2006 it was eventually replaced by universal's house of horrors which i did attend which was super cool nice and then eventually it was replaced by a walking dead attraction that's it for the whole plan for Van Helsing and this sort of franchise that never came to be. 
are there like iterations before the one we got? Was this story in development for a while? Were they kicking around the idea of doing Van Helsing? Or is this something Steven Summers was like, this is what the mummy was all building to? Like, this is my passion project, the culmination of his ideas? Or was this something like laying around? So my understanding is that, you know, so Universal put out the mummy and the mummy returns and they were like huge hits. They were like, oh, you know, what would be great is if we did something with these other monsters we have. And Stephen Summers is this guy who's incredibly passionate and loves this material. Let's give him money to make this movie. I do have some information on this, but like the general gist of it, from what I understand, is that Summers said, okay, I have carte blanche to make a Universal Monsters movie. I'm going to go, you know, revisit all this old material and then see what I come up with. What he presented to the executives, they were keen on and greenlit the project. Okay. That's how we got this movie. This was not something that existed before the success of The Mummy and The Mummy Returns. Yeah, they were probably just expecting him to come up with like a Dracula movie or something. And he comes with this and he's like, look, we could we could bring all the creatures in at once, do more of like a House of Frankenstein sort of situation. Before I get into all the backstory of Van Helsing, Mike, I'd like to know what were your thoughts going into this one? I know you've seen it before this. Has your opinion changed since you revisited it for the show? My opinion of this movie changes like every time I watch it. It really does. It like depends partially on my mood. I remember the first time I watched it, I seen it on DVD. Like it came out at a time where I had started collecting a lot of DVDs. So like, oh, it came out and DVD. I was like, oh, I'll just buy it and watch it and put it on the shelf it's so overwhelming i remember at the time being like wow well well this is insane and like <laughs> crazy and over the top you know it's like a true 2004 blockbuster cgi meets practical effects some of it works some of it doesn't it's a monster of a movie you know it feels like all really stitched together and stuff but like still there's a lot of strong ideas there's a lot of fun stuff going on now i haven't seen it in a while so sitting down to rewatch it this time I had to take it in parts, to be quite honest with you. Like there was kind of more than I remembered. Like it is so fast paced. There's so much talking. Being a film student, Dan, if you'll agree with me, kind of like broke us in a little way where like you can see the seams and stitches and stuff if you're looking for them in certain movies and things, right? Yeah. yeah. There seems to be a ton of that in this where there's like, we need to shoot this scene to make this connect or we need to do this dialogue to make this connect. I couldn't stop keeping track of things like that. But like as I kept going and watched it, it just washes over me. I try to like take the good and leave the bad, but overall, like, yeah, it's, it's insane, right? Like, yeah, I don't want to bash it. Like there, there are things about it. I do like, but it's out of control. We'll get way into it. I'm sure. But I was very overwhelmed. I did kind of tease to you the other night over our text chat that there was something about this movie that could have not fixed everything for me, but I was watching it this time. And I was like, you know what it really feels like to me is Castlevania, the movie. It's not like they had the rights to call it that. But for me, I'm just going to call it that in my head from now on. Those are my crazy thoughts about it right now. So my history with Van Helsing is, you know, this came out in 2004. I was a junior in high school at the time. Like I was going into my senior year, I think. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I didn't see this in the theater, but I caught it on DVD. I saw the DVD and I got this like special edition two disc set. Actually, it was a no, I'm sorry. It was a three disc set. And what appealed 
to me because I hadn't seen the movie yet. I bought it sight unseen, but the disc came with the original Dracula, the original Frankenstein and the original Wolfman. And so I thought to myself, even if Van Helsing is trash, I will get three DVD copies of these classic monster movies, two of which at that point I had never seen. So I was really excited to finally see Dracula for the first time and finally see the Wolfman. I bought it and I remember enjoying it well enough, but it wasn't something that I had on all of the time. I was essentially revisiting this for the first time in a long time, watching it with like almost totally fresh eyes. And you're right, there is a lot going on. I mean, I have 12 pages of handwritten notes just to track the plot. So when we get to that part of the show, we'll see how well I do. Listeners, please bear with me. This thing has so many moving parts and we're not going to get to everything, but I'm going to try and cover it as well as possible. Yeah. But this thing throws everything at the wall just to see what sticks. I was talking to a friend of mine recently. I told him we were going to be recording and he has a lot of experience with this movie. And I told him it's like, if you watch, I mean, this is basically what we did. If you watch The Mummy, The Mummy Returns and Van Helsing in success, you can see the studio giving Stephen Summers more and more freedom to the point where it becomes a detriment almost. Like this is completely unhinged, unrestrained Stephen Summers. Like I agree with you that there are some pretty cool ideas in here. I like the concept of Van Helsing as this character that ties all of these iconic monsters together, right? Like I, I could totally see, I mean, maybe not Edward Van Sloan's Van Helsing, but certainly the, the idea of a Van Helsing, like sort of monster expert who travels the world, hunts monsters or whatever. That makes perfect sense to me. I love that as a concept. Some of the sequences in this I really love. Like we're going to talk about that first like 10 minutes black and white sequence. Love that. But then there's like all of this stuff that just doesn't make any sense to me at all. It continually keeps adding and adding in a way that the mind can't keep up, right? And like when you overload it with information like that, nothing feels important enough to kind of care about, okay? So like the movie He's constantly setting things up and constantly paying things off. It's like it's kind of in a way blank check syndrome. They just let him loose unrestrained and it's hard not to lose control. You know, when you're given the keys, how can you not do everything you've wanted to do? without the assurance that it's going to keep going. But they were like, hey, we're going to do two, three or four of these. You know, you didn't have to put everything into the first one. Yeah. I think about some of the changes in the monster mythology. We know all the different things that can kill a vampire. But like, for whatever reason, all of those don't matter because this is Dracula. Okay. You know, like I'm fine with him breaking a rule here or there, like an established monster rule, but like he seems intent here on breaking all of them. And so suddenly everything I've ever come to know about these characters is irrelevant. There's so much new information that it becomes overwhelming and hard to keep up with. So yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. Personally, I feel like a lot of these ideas are sound and would work, just not all at once. Anna and her brother. That's a whole other movie on its own, mm-hmm. right? That's a spinoff or whatever, or like from, from the world of Van Helsing come the Valerius brother and sister. This movie is a tug of war between these two storylines, and it's hard to invest in one or the other because they're constantly fighting for my attention in that way. And especially the Van Helsing stuff is like, they're really trying to like up his game because I feel a lot of it is sort of taken away by the Kate Beckinsale character. 
character, which is terrible because she's such a great character. There's a lot of questionable decisions going on here. I didn't think I could feel more overwhelmed than I did watching The Mummy Returns, considering <laughs> how busy that one is. But this, I also had to kind of watch in pieces. I typically will watch every movie that we watch for this show like a couple of times. This one, I like didn't want to watch it. It's only like two hours long, but it feels like it's forever. Yeah, it's hard because it does. It feels like you've watched more than one movie. Maybe it's a generation thing. You know, maybe younger people with a shorter attention span, they could get into this more because it is kind of like that. Like every scene is going in a different direction. And so that would keep them, you know, invested or interested. But for me, it's like I at this point watching it now at my age, I'm like, you guys got to like just slow down and pick a lane (laughs) and kind of just drive in that lane for the rest of the movie instead of like getting off at every exit and seeing, you know, what the rest stops like. It's like, no, no, no. Where's the focus? Where's the focus? (laughs) Yeah, I don't hate Van Helsing, but if I'm being perfectly honest, I do have to say that it's a disappointment in that it could have been really cool. And because it's got so much going on and no one's told Steven Summers no, it just gets out of hand and yeah. becomes a chore to watch when it should be really fun and entertaining. That's the tragedy is that like it is such a cool concept. He is a good linchpin to bring this entire universe together. You know, the Nick Fury, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, is today's reference. I love the concept. You know, we talked about this with The Mummy, how we wanted Brendan Fraser to go be the monster hunter. This is sort of what we were asking for in away yeah and, and i love hugh jackman and i kind of love his portrayal of this character you know it just doesn't feel like his movie most of the time which is unfortunate and i think it also for me partially comes down to the style which we'll get mm. a bit more into there's just sort of a refinement i felt missing this time from from him in particular from what i was expecting from the sophistication i guess not that his movies are terribly sophisticated but like he brings a sense of knowledge of his world to his movies like i said in the mummy returns like even if we don't really get everything going on he does i feel like here he's not even sure exactly what exists in his own world of Van Helsing. Yeah, we can move on, but I'll just say this one last thing. I am certain that this movie is the reason why in, was it the 2017 Mummy? I'm certain that that's why they chose Dr. Jekyll to be the Nick Fury of the Dark Universe because of this movie. They're like, Van Helsing was very poorly received. We don't want to risk that again. So let's go a different route. And they chose a really oddball choice to be the connecting uh, (laughs) character for the Dark Universe. That's just how I see it. But we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to that movie. Yep. Okay, so we'll go down through our credits here. This was produced, directed, and written by Steven Summers. So he's wearing all the hats for this one. No Sean Daniel or James Jacks. So that also could have had something to do with it. Initially, the project was expected to be somewhat smaller, but as Summers was developing the script, he began drawing inspiration from the original films and the novels. And at some point, he decided to include three monsters, and the entire project just ballooned into something much, much bigger. And as I said before, the studio exists loved this idea it's even bigger than that three monsters there's three werewolves in this movie alone the cinematography was done by occasional spielberg collaborator alan daviau who previously shot spielberg's 1968 short film amblin and would go on to shoot et the extraterrestrial the kick the can segment of the twilight zone the movie the color purple and empire of the sun okay we talk about makeup on this show not so much recently because so much of this is is digital and i only know so much about digital effects but 
in this case, Greg Cannon was our special makeup designer. One of the high points of the movie, the amazing makeup, especially on Frankenstein's monster. Yes. So Greg Cannon created the looks for Igor, Frankenstein's monster, and Dracula's brides. Oh, yeah. Cannon is a four-time Academy Award winner, having won previously for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, look at that. Okay. Monster Man. And Mrs. Doubtfire. He would also go on to win for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button and Vice. And he received nominations for Hook, Hoffa, Roommates, Titanic, Bicentennial Man, and A Beautiful Mind. And the makeup he designed for Van Helsing specifically, it was meant to show the actor beneath it rather than cover them up. And that was a way to allow their humanity to show through. And I think that was especially true of the Frankenstein monster, who in this case, I think draws more from the novel character rather than Boris Karloff's iteration of the Frankenstein monster. Oh, yeah, I I truly love I wish we had more. This Frankenstein getting a movie after this would have been great. I really like the portrayal of that. It's quite unusual in cinema. I mean, I guess it's closer to what De Niro was trying to do right but a lot of fun there and then the Igor stuff yeah well I just love that actor love Kevin J O'Connor so much and everything so like he he definitely came right through that makeup for sure much of this one was shot in Prague in the Czech Republic with some shooting in Alberta Canada as well but you know with Stephen Summers he's always employing a variety of techniques to create these worlds that's definitely true of Van Helsing here he used a combination of real world locations sound stages some sets that were so big they had to be built outside on the studio parking lot matte paintings and of course practical and digital stunts and effects i know this one gets a lot of flack for being kind of a cgi fest to a degree that's true but i think it's a discredit to the overall intention you know because there was so much done here with practical stuff i know stephen summers made a point to use as much real stuff as he could including the actors before resorting to those digital effects so like even hugh jackman and kate beckinsale they did you know, they did many of their own stunts and there was a lot of wire work, particularly with Dracula's brides. And, you know, they would shoot them up in the air on the wires. And then in editing, they would use that footage to help use the actor's actual faces onto what they refer to as digital doubles for some of the yep. more dangerous stunts. So I feel like we should give it credit for doing that. I think maybe the problem is CGI just wasn't as good at the time. It was still ILM in 2004. So it would have been like state-of-the-art digital effects. But it's sort of like when you look at early digital effects you know think of stuff from the 90s and and how poorly that's aged you know like it just hadn't been perfected yet and nowadays there's just cgi and everything and and it's a lot less obvious yeah i actually quite enjoy all of the creature design you know like the actual concept design of them like when the brides have transformed they look cool and everything and the werewolf looks cool and and there's actually less cgi than i recall like it's mostly stuff like the werewolf and then mm-hmm. things like that and the and the brides and the babies and dracula when he's transformed and it's like that stuff i mean the sets are incredible i love that tactile feel like all the different sets are, are fantastic and it sells it so much to still have all that thing in camera for them to like walk into and, and interact with and everything and i think part of the issue for me when it comes to sort of the look of the film is the camera kind of can't sit still really you know mm-hmm. like it's yep. whipping and moving all over the place and like so that's overactive and it becomes a bit of a monochromatic movie as well and now that kind of ties in a bit to the black and white of the originals i suppose but this is a very sort of like blue and silver feeling sort of movie to me i don't know that that helps as much either especially when like frankenstein well kind of dracula's monster in this but frankenstein 
his monster's going to show up. And like, I thought he might be green to kind of pop a little bit, but like, oh, he's pale. And then like Igor, he's pale. Those are some interesting choices that uh, stylistically, um, but as, you know, the, the effects are top notch for what you could do. I just think that he asked for too much. You know, the compositing is there. It's just kind of, for me, it's more with the character animation. When you start getting into those digital doubles and, and those vampire brides, they're just transforming too much. They're just doing too much. It's just breaking too many laws of reality for me, for my head to kind of like wrap itself around. But I definitely appreciate all of the practical stuff going on. Now, the one standout digital effect is definitely Mr. Hyde. I think they nailed that. Like, But they might have sort of like shot their load at the beginning and like never really recovered by the end. Oh, sure. I think you you're probably right. I mean, it is such a busy movie that with the camera moving as much as it does, that it's difficult to appreciate the real stuff that's in the frame. But I wanted to address it because this has a reputation. When I learned all this stuff, you know, I was like, I have to at least mention it. It deserves a little more respect in that regard. You know, it's still got its problems, but it's definitely not the the complete CGI fest I was remembering it was. My whole thing throughout the night is going to be like, it's not so much the parts that are the problem, it's that they don't really fit together together yeah in the way that i was expecting you know in, in a pleasing way oh there's even puppets in this movie also i forgot to mention that they used puppets for dracula's offspring no not for the flight sequences but i guess in their like egg sacks they use puppets summers gets a little more flack than he deserves here even dracula's minions is like his shy guys doing his stuff like there there seems like thought put into all that and one of them gets their face ripped off and he's got like a creature face that's about all I got for like production notes. Everything else, as far as I can tell, kind of happened the way you expect it would. It's just Stephen Summers was given carte blanche to do whatever. All right. So let's get into the cast here. Hugh Jackman, iconic Australian actor, plays Gabriel Van Helsing, which was, I thought, an interesting choice. He's not Abraham Van Helsing. He's Gabriel. I don't mind the name change. I'm a huge fan of Hugh Jackman. Thank goodness he's Van Helsing. He just constantly, I feel like, is one of those actors that if you're not even really connecting to the film, like I'm connecting to him. I'm I'm going there to see what he's up to, what he's doing. And, and the guy has always got, got the vibe and the energy to keep me watching one of his movies. Yeah, his casting is one of the things that holds up for me watching it two decades later. He's not doing a whole lot of heavy lifting here, but because I'm so familiar with Hugh Jackman, it's almost a shorthand for what's not there on the page for this character. At the time, he had just had his breakthrough role as Wolverine in X-Men and X2 had just come out. So he wasn't like an established movie star yet. He had just kind of become this international movie star. So like this is like the next thing after X-Men. Yeah, this was like his first can he handle being the star. Like they kind of gave X2 to Wolverine for the most part, but like Ian McKellen and stuff was still there Uh, but like this feels like okay he's the star driving this motion picture and what we all know now but may have been a shock at the time is that he is also an accomplished stage actor having gotten his start at the university of technology sydney where he earned a degree in communications but he took some theater classes in his final year just for the credits and having been bitten by the acting bug he completed a one-year course at the actor center in sydney known as the journey and has said of this experience quote It wasn't until I was 22 that I ever thought about my hobby being something I could make a living out of. As a boy, I'd always had an interest in theater, but the idea at my school was that drama and music were to round out the man. It wasn't what one did for a living. I got over that. I found the courage to stand up and say, I want to do it, end quote. He then enrolled 
enrolled at the Western Australia Academy of Performing Arts of Edith Cohen University in Perth before landing roles on television and the stage. And it was his performance in the 1998 Royal National Theatre production of Oklahoma that made him an international star. Producer and editor Bob Doucet saw him in this show and maintains that Hugh was the only choice for Van Helsing based on this performance. Cool. Kind of comes from the stage is like the lineage of monster movie actors in a, in a way. Right. There was a time during his career where I kind of considered him more of a of a stage actor than a film actor for some reason. But I always see like he's got a, an amazing voice. He can dance that the greatest showman, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I remember years ago he was on Broadway in The Boy from Oz. You know, I remember watching the Tonys that year and he performed a bit from that show. And I was like, this was like before I had seen him as a song and dance man. I think at that point I had heard about it and I watched him and I was like, this guy is like effortless on stage. Right. He's charisma. He can dance he can sing how did this guy get wolverine he can be there if you need him to do the action too like he's convincing sure. as wolverine and then you see like logan and you're like oh wow like he could act he's actually got chops as well like he can bring pathos to some of this also real stuff guys turned out to be a true movie star it's really cool to see at least like i guess our generation see him kind of rise the whole way like that is pretty cool We've got Kate Beckinsale, who plays Anna Valerius. Princess Anna. I don't really know much about Kate Beckinsale outside of a handful of movies, so I did a little bit of research. She was the daughter of two actors, and she always had dreams of being an actor herself. She began in her teens, appearing in various series on ITV, which is a British public television network in the early 90s. And then while attending Oxford, she had landed roles in Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing, as well as 1994's Prince of Jutland alongside Christian Bale. Post-university, she worked on John Schlesinger's 1995 film Cold Comfort Farm and made her stage debut in a production of Chekhov's The Seagull with Michael Sheen, with whom she became romantically involved. Shortly after appearing with Mark Strong and Samantha Morton in a 1997 ITV production of Jane Austen's Emma, Kate moved to Hollywood where she appeared in several films before her breakthrough performance in Michael Bay's 2001 war film Pearl Harbor. That's considered her breakthrough? That's wild. I was surprised to hear that also. I'd never seen that. I'd never seen that. I was waiting for you to mention the 1998 movie, The Last Days of Disco, the Whit Stillman movie with Chloe Sevigny. Like that. She's great in that. That's what I, I think, first saw her in. In 2003, she landed what is probably her most iconic role, the vampire assassin Celine in the Underworld films. Now, Dan, just imagine, were they thinking that one day Princess Anna would have to track down vampire Celine? Well, actually, so she was the last person to be cast in this movie. I don't think Steven Summers thought she would even be interested because she had just done Underworld. Her agent insisted that she would love to do it. So I, th I do think it's interesting in back to back years, she was Celine and then Anna in Van Helsing. Yeah, both sides. She got to play both sides. I mean, that's cool. Maybe she's just really into monster stuff. That's great. Which is cool, but I also didn't realize like she has this like history of doing like Shakespeare and Jane Austen stuff. She can do that. She can do Adam Sandler movies. She's versatile and convincing the whole way. Absolutely. I, I think she's a natural action star, as we know from Underworld and other things she's done. Revisiting this, I thought, oh, okay, it's Kate Beckinsale. She's going to kick ass. I have a crazy Underworld theory that's all to myself, is that it's a previous build of The Matrix when vampires and werewolves <laughs> existed, like they said in the second one, you know? And because, like, you watch those movies and, like, it looks just, it's like, it is The Matrix. It's just with werewolves and vampires. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that's how I got through that series. I think I've seen all, like, 
six or seven of those movies. You know, it's funny. I've never seen any of them. The subject matter speaks to me, but you know, I wasn't really watching a lot of stuff like that when those movies came out. So I'm so far behind that I just never started. At some point, I should probably just, you know, bite the bullet and do it. I bite the silver bullet, maybe. (laughs) Will Kemp plays Velkin Valerius, Prince Velkin. Not a ton about him. He's a classically trained English ballet dancer who had Hmm. previously appeared in a three-year production of Swan Lake, performing in London and New York. Famously turned down a modeling contract with Giorgio Armani, saying he did not want to be confused as a model as opposed to an actor. Here he is making his acting debut in Van Helsing. This may be his most high-profile film. He has worked steadily since its release, appearing in films and made-for-TV movies, including Mm -hmm. the straight-to-DVD film The Scorpion King 4, The Quest for Power. How is this going to work? Oh, man. So we will be seeing Will Kemp again in the not-too-distant future. I love that he's showing up twice. Like He didn't do a lot of like genre movies, from what I could tell, and we get two of them. Yeah, and they're, you know, kind of quote-unquote in the same universe, which is weird. David Wenham plays Carl. He is uh, another Australian actor. Should be no stranger to our audience, as he's appeared in a number of genre films since the late 90s, including The Lord of the Rings, 300, and Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. For those of you who also listen to Mike's other podcasts, Viva Pod Vegas and Hanks for the Memories, yes, he was also Hank Snow in Elvis. Oh, there we go. Fun fact, his character's name, Carl, was inspired by none other than Universal co-founder Carl Lemley. Nice, because it sticks out so much at the time period. It's like Game of Thrones, where like, what I thought was kind of fun about it's like medieval and shit, but people are called like John and Steve and Chris. Here we have like Mariska and Gabriel, and he's like, I'm Carl. Yeah, and I love him in this movie. I mean, like the whole idea of Van Helsing having like a like a Q, a gadget guy. He's a full on Robin in this. Yeah, it's so silly to me, but also I just I love whenever David Wenham and Hugh Jackman have scenes together because their chemistry is just so great. Oh, yeah. Alan Armstrong, we know him from The Mummy Returns. He's back this time as Cardinal Jeanette. So, yeah, if you want to learn more about Alan Armstrong, we talk a lot more about him in that Mummy Returns episode. Here he is like sort of as the head of this like secret monster hunting society. Based in the Vatican, no less. We've come a long way since keeping our religion out of our out of our Frankenstein movies. I saved our monsters for last. Richard Roxburgh plays Count Vladislaus Dracula, another Australian. Roxburgh got his start on the stage, appearing in a 1994 production of Hamlet alongside Jeffrey Rush and David Wenham. In 2000, he appeared in his first international blockbuster, John Woo's Mission Impossible 2, and he famously played the Duke in Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge, both filmed in Sydney, before he played a string of iconic characters. First, it was Sherlock Holmes in the 2002 TV production of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Then he played Professor Moriarty in 2003's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And of course, here he plays Count Dracula. Nice. And if I'm not mistaken, he also shared the screen in 2022 Boslerman's Elvis as Vernon Presley, Elvis's pop. That's right. Kevin J. O'Connor is Igor. What perfect casting. You know, if you listen to the director's commentary for Van Helsing, Stephen Summers, you know, talks about how, like, they wanted to put Kevin in the movie. Who else is he going to play? Igor is, like, the perfect role for him. One of the highlights of this movie is Kevin J. O'Connor as Igor. He's way taller than he appears. He's 6'1", and on screen, he, he looks pretty short in all of his movies because he's always sort of playing the second guy. He's got this weird ability to, like, make himself look smaller. I think Stephen Summers talks about that on the commentary, funny enough. Dracula's Brides, Alina Anaya plays Alira 
Sylvia Kalaka as Verona and Josie Moran plays Mariska. Don't ask me which one is which. I can't remember. There's a blonde, a brunette, and a redhead. I think Mariska is the redhead. That's the joke, right? Is that he's got like one of each. Yes. Schuler Hensley plays the Frankenstein monster. Now, this is pretty cool. Schuler Hensley is an American actor of stage and screen, and he began his acting career while attending the University of Georgia, ironically, on a baseball scholarship. But after being cast as Judge Turpin in a college production of Sweeney Todd, he left in his sophomore year to study voice at the Manhattan School of Music, where he majored in opera, and from there obtained his master's degree at the Curtis Institute of Music right here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Go birds. His list of stage credits includes a lot of the standard stuff you'd expect, you know, on the town, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, Pirates of Penzance, etc. But one thing that is particularly noteworthy is a 1996 German production of The Phantom of the Opera, in which oh. he played the title role in German. Oh, wow. Cool. I'd like to have seen that with subtitles. Considering he does a pretty solid job as the Frankenstein monster here. I would love to see him play the Phantom of the Opera. That'd be super cool. But here's where things get even more interesting. In 1998, he was cast as Judd Fry in the National Theater production of Oklahoma. Yeah, I see where this is going. He performed with Hugh Jackman, and it was actually this production where Stephen Summers discovered Hensley. And Hensley and Jackman have gone on to work together in other films, including Someone Like You and The Greatest Showman, as well as the Broadway revival of The Music Man. And the 1999 three-hour musical western movie version of Oklahoma. Yes. They actually filmed it and they're in it. And also of note, Hensley also starred as the Frankenstein monster in the Broadway production of Young Frankenstein. Oh, okay. So this guy just plays monsters, apparently, or does it really well. But here in Van Helsing, he's working double duty. He also did all of the motion capture work for Mr. Hyde. Oh, really? That wasn't Robbie Coltrane running around in a sock suit? No. So Robbie Coltrane, of course, is the voice of Mr. Hyde. Schuler Hensley did all the motion capture for that. I thought maybe he was actually on set running around doing some stuff. I think Schuler's probably, you know, because he does so much stage work that he's probably more better equipped to do so much of the, more of the like the physical performance. That's probably what it is. I don't know that I could see Robbie Coltrane doing the motion capture for Mr. Hyde. Not like hanging from the rafters, but just being there with Hugh running the lines and doing the voice and getting in character and all that. That would have been cool. We didn't even need the CG. We could have just had Robbie Coltrane. Okay, so I know that the scene with Hyde and Ben Helsing in this is a fun sequence but I've never really understood this thing where Mr. Hyde kind of becomes the Hulk. In the original story he doesn't become this giant monster man right? Like he just becomes a more grotesque violent man and in this and in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen they basically are like okay Hyde is going to be our Hulk and I just I don't get it. I don't understand why that has to be but both movies are fairly cartoonish so I guess that's why. I think Alan Moore was going somewhere with the concept originally, and then it just kind of becomes referential, right? And I think they kind of get somewhere in the middle. He's not quite the Hulk, but like he's definitely too big to be human. Real quick, couple like cameos here. English actor, theater director, and narrator Samuel West plays Victor Frankenstein. And for all of about 15 seconds, Stephen Fisher plays Dr. Henry Jekyll. Can't have your hide without Jekyll, so. That would have been a great director cameo. He's on screen for like two seconds. Finally, we've got a score by Alan Silvestri. He came back, still partnered with Stephen Summers after The Mummy Returns. Last production note, 
the All Hallows' Eve ball that we're going to talk about. There's a lot of acrobatics and wire work and stuff in that sequence. That was all choreographed by a woman named Deborah Brown, who was the principal choreographer for Cirque du Soleil. Oh, okay. Nice. That's it for my production notes. So we can just get right into the movie. All right, let's get on in there. Okay, so the movie opens with an incredible black and white sequence. You know, like I think that a lot of people who want to like this movie and are disappointed, we all kind of agree that the first, what, 10 or 15 minutes of it is pretty awesome. Overall, I really like the black and white effect. It's really fun. I like this whole setup for the movie we're about to see. I think it's pretty cool to see like Dracula and Frankenstein and his monster and Igor all kind of in the same space. And then I think the movie actually opens like the first thing you see is like an angry mob with its torches and pitchforks like it's taking you right back to the 1930s yeah the one thing i wish we got to start with though was one of the old logos one of the old universal logos i wish that is what caught on fire so that was the plan oh stephen summers says in the commentary it didn't test well apparently it took people out of the movie the movie just started i don't get it either but i thought the same thing and to know that that was the plan especially since you're about to establish that we're in one of those movies that's what's so odd about it. Okay, so I think conceptually, this is a brilliant idea. Let's go back into those old movies and show you something that was kind of going on behind the scenes. There's this conspiracy between Dr. Frankenstein and Dracula. Like, they're not just building the monster. They're trying, we'll find out later, they're trying to, like, power a machine. I dug the way that they were tying all this together, the kind of pyramid of power. You know, you think, like, Frankenstein is in control, but no, he works for Dracula. Like, I thought that was kind of cool. I don't think he knows to what extent. But Dracula's there going like, how's it going? And, and you know, and Frankenstein's yeah. like, it's it's going great. We're doing it. Like, this is happening. And then once Dracula, like, gets what he wants, he offs him. And, you know, he's like, I don't need you anymore. I, like, we can get on without you. Uh, it would have been cool if he survived a little longer, but we got enough going on. Yeah. Just to sum up here, we, we open in Transylvania, 1887. Frankenstein is working on his latest experiment, which his famous creation, his famous monster. But in this story, he's essentially being funded by Count Dracula, who is interested in using these experiments to ultimately give life to his offspring. And that becomes like sort of the major plot point for this entire movie. Yeah. And the timeline's a little off. This is sort of like what they did with Halloween, where like we're, we're branching off of the original and doing our own sequel, right? We're not going right. to do Bride of Frankenstein. We're going to like go off and do Van Helsing instead. Cause like we kind of speed through a lot of stuff and the timelines condensed incredibly for Frankenstein's monster and all that. This sequence really books, but I, I don't have trouble following it. it. Kind of does everything really quickly and efficiently. Frankenstein realizes that Dracula has some nefarious plans for his work resists and of course dies Igor betrays him go figure and by the end of this sequence the monster escapes captivity carries his creator to this windmill that is loaded with absinthe highly flammable the mob pursues him to the windmill and of course they burn the whole thing down Dracula arrives too late we presume that Frankenstein and his creation are burned alive or they're dead inside the burned remains of the of the windmill hell of an opening I really love this yeah grabs you definitely I I thought it was a lot of fun. And I remember the first time I watching it going like, all right, we're pretty, we're off to a pretty good start here. One year later, we move to Paris. And color. In color. Yep. 
we are introduced to Van Helsing. He is, quote, the most wanted man in Europe when we meet him. There's like wanted posters with his face on them. I feel like this is going to keep changing. I feel like he's wanted some places, but he's a hero in other places. In other places, no one's ever heard of him. And in other <laughs> places, like they're like, you've been around for 400 years. And he's always thinking about the Roman Empire. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm having these dreams where I'm fighting in Rome and shit. Like, it's kind of fun if that's the joke. But I don't know if they ever really land on what is he is he good is he like what do people see him as like does he need to be feared to do what he does to, you know but he is a killer so i don't know but he looks badass he's got his, his cool scarf with his like all-seeing eye on it and shit and uh throughout the movie he's gonna wear that really cool turtleneck but it makes it work he works it he's cool got his floppy hat yeah, I dig it. But here we're introduced to him as he pursues Hyde through Paris, culminating in an entire action sequence at Notre Dame. We learn that this Van Helsing has like gadgets and weapons. He's got these like hand blades that spin. I mean, he uses one to cut off Hyde's arm and cut a hole through the floor. It's ridiculous. It's over the top and very silly. But, you know, it was early 2000s. It's the exact sort of action sequence you would see at this time. Those blades come back later. I think his weapons are all on point for the movie we're in. Like he's in a certain time period, but he needs the advanced technology and he's part of a secret society. So he'd have access to stuff no one else would. And he, you know, we'll get to it, but he's kind of a James Bond, right? Right. James Bond monster hunter. Does he kill Hyde? Yeah. It's either kill or be killed. Like this version of Hyde, apparently he's been chasing him across several countries. He's already taken down the Eiffel Tower, right? It's like missing the top it's one of his crimes. I mean, he's got like a bullet hole in his arm from when they last encountered him. It's like a full-on throwdown here. This CGI, full-on CGI character is the best at the time of this movie coming out. I don't know that we've gone much further further than this guy like i think i think he looks awesome like i'm really cool with his look but again like i said earlier I, this movie feels like you know you shoot a movie in sequence yeah. it feels like they did the effects in sequence so like they start amazing and then they kind of just keep trickling off throughout the movie it helps that this is a pretty simple scene to shoot i mean they can do everything with sets real sets and, and real props yeah. and the only real digital effect they have to worry about is hide but he definitely kills him he throws him out of a window and instead of dying he transforms and lets the other guy die ultimately that's what he struggles with right van helsing as you know this is his responsibility he's sent out to like capture these monsters but they end up dying in their encounter they always result in the death of whoever he's pursuing yeah and he mentions later he's like you don't have to see them when they turn back into who they were right and i was like oh that that's kind of like a good that's a great line for him i wish this movie was just about him and like a lot of previous encounters, presumably the bystanders, you know, the people who, who find Dr. Jekyll's yeah. corpse on the ground, blame Van Helsing for killing this man, not knowing that he was also Hyde. Again, though, he's like, he is kind of dressed like Batman, you know, it's like the same problem. It's like, maybe don't dress so villainous <laughs> I don't know how else to put it i don't it's like the shadow too he looks a lot like the shadow and it's like the normal bystander isn't supposed to be scared of you when they encounter you after hyde is taken care of van helsing makes his way back to vatican city and this is where we learn more 
about the Knights of the Holy Order, this whole hierarchy, this whole organization that has him all over the world as a monster hunter. Now, this is one of a couple different information dumps in the movie. I'm going to try mm-hmm. and like sort of sum up the gist of what we learn in this scene. So we know that Van Helsing was found half dead by these folks. They believed that he had this divine purpose to rid the world of monsters. And he has no memory of who he was before they found him. That's going to come into play later. He's given his mission, which is, you know, this is what this movie is going to be. He has to go to Romania to destroy Dracula. Then we get the legend. 450 years ago, a Transylvanian knight by the name of Valerius the Elder, he promised God that his family would never rest or enter heaven until they vanquished Dracula from the land. And I think our cardinal here mentions that they are running out of family. Yeah, they're down to the last three, the dad, the son, and the daughter. The dad has gone missing, which is sort of why they call in Van Helsing. We have Boris Valerius, who disappeared 12 months ago. He was, quote unquote, king of the gypsies. His only son, Prince Velkin, and his daughter, Princess Anna, are left. And if they're killed before Dracula is vanquished, nine generations of their family will never enter heaven. Still with you. Yeah. And we do get one clue. Valerius the Elder left like this scrap of paper that I guess mm-hmm. has been like handed through the generations. Well, yeah, Valerius the Elder would have been the original. So so they still have this scrap of paper. It reads, in the name of God, open this door. A couple things about this scene so far it's awesome when he's because it like starts with him doing his confession and then the priest like pulls a lever and reveals like the secret entrance to the actual vatican this super busy really awesome testing room of like how to kill monsters and it's like every religion is represented right did you catch that they're like buddhist monks it's like a supernatural club of religions trying to rid the world of monsters and it's like very active it's like i think this part's very well directed there's a lot of information the dracula stuff it's like i don't know why they really bother changing it but that's not my main problem the thing is like this whole storyline with the valerius's the Valerii, the Valeria. <laughs> I love the Kate Beckinsale's character and like this stuff is cool, but like this is not the movie that I was expecting at all. Like why can't Van Helsing just be on this mission on his own? Why did we introduce this other set of characters? Like all of that stuff, while it's like fun and cool, it just seems like it's constantly clashing with the nature of the movie, you know? Like it feels like the movie, and I run into this kind of often, it's like the movie is saying Van Helsing, but the director is saying the Valerius, the Valerius, you know? They like always kind of want to shoehorn that in where I feel like I wish it was just Hugh Jackman the whole movie. You know, as much as I love what Kate Beckinsale is doing, it just you know feels like it belongs maybe somewhere else my first thought would be that you know maybe they were hoping that she would stick around for future movies or whatever but that couldn't be possible because both she and her brother die by the end of this movie like it's a closed loop for her and her brother if they cut these characters out completely and it was just van helsing fighting dracula inherently you've got a 90 minute movie yeah probably a a better balanced movie as much as i like Kate Beckinsale, it's completely unnecessary. You could still run into her at Transylvania and she can be like the badass that was keeping the town safe, you know, but you just don't have to introduce all this extra lore that is kind of, it's sidetracking me. I'm only really invested in Van Helsing's past because in this, they also introduce like a secret ring. He's like, all I've ever had was this ring. I don't know anything else. And they're like, ah, yes, the ring, which is like the signet of their organization and all this stuff. 
so like i'm more into that uh the other thing is they have this like piece of a parchment and like they never gave it back like if they had just given this piece of paper to their family you know ages ago they could have put it in the wall on the big tapestry and gone to dracula's castle immediately truthfully i think the only reason for this valerius family thing is so that the movie can have werewolves but it could still have werewolves there's gonna be a werewolf that's gonna bite velkin so like there's already a werewolf you could still get hugh jackman to become a werewolf at the end if you needed him to but i think having a reason to keep her alive because he has to keep one of them alive before dracula is killed it gives her character higher stakes but i don't think she needs them it's completely unnecessary they could have werewolves they could have her in the movie but all this extra like family lore i think weighs down the movie um i do love that the knights of the holy order are made up of like multiple religions from across the world they're all located Mm. under the streets of vatican city super cool production design here i love this sequence uh this is where we're introduced to carl and we sort of talked about james bond i compared him to q and this is where we kind of get our q james bond sequence we get to see all these different gadgets they're working on different things to kill monsters we get that sort of glycerin that he invented that sort of liquid combustible there's a rapid fire crossbow and then there's this one toy that will come into play later that uh, i forget specifically what it is but we know that it can generate a light source equal to the intensity of the sun so put that in a movie with vampires what do you think's going to happen this is all like that steampunk kind of stuff too aesthetically is working well yeah i definitely uh enjoy this sequence once van helsing has his mission he and carl go to transylvania together he takes carl with him even though he's not a field man so then we cut to a scene where that introduces velkin and anna this is in transylvania and they are hunting a werewolf that had Mm. been unleashed by dracula so dracula is just creating werewolves and setting them loose on the people of Transylvania. Yeah, we don't have any history on where the first werewolf comes from, but I was just like, don't use yourself as bait. Like, you know, get a town folk. But this whole thing ends up kind of going awry. There's some cool action. I like when Anna's like in front of the giant cage that they've tried to capture the werewolf in and it kind of shoots up like into the tree and it catches her foot and she has to do like this weird backflip. I thought that was kind of fun. Yeah, there's some good staging here. Now, it's kind of a fun sequence that works pretty well. Ultimately, Velkin sacrifices himself to save Anna from the werewolf. What did you think of the werewolf design? We haven't really seen one like this. It's all right. It's obviously cgi like they're not Mm -hmm. trying to hide any of that kind of doing stuff that's impossible you know to do in a suit i think it looks fine for what it is i think it looks worse as the movie goes along like i think this is the best it gets maybe when he's on top of the flaming cart flaming carriage yeah that's a great shot but i think this is probably my favorite use of the werewolf i don't i don't really like the way hugh jackman's like kind of black for werewolf ends up looking i like the sort of the brighter one so yeah. i thought this one was cool yeah so velkin is presumed dead in this encounter he gets sort of like taken off the edge of a cliff yes and then we cut back to van helsing and carl who are traveling to transylvania it's like a lord of the rings travel sequence as they trek through the snowy mountains the quick montage now that we're at transylvania didn't address this with the opening but how do you feel about frankenstein's castle being in transylvania and not the town of Frankenstein in like Germany or Germania or German land or anything. I did think it was an interesting choice to have Frankenstein's castle in Transylvania and then to have Dracula's castle in a hidden location. It's in like a secret realm. Yeah, it's hidden in like some Arctic region someplace. It's in a snowy mirror. 
Yeah. I don't think most people, I don't think most casual mm-hmm. viewers of these old monster movies even know that Frankenstein lived in the town of Frankenstein. Yeah. So I don't think it matters. If you're trying to combine stuff and like move things around, I think it's a pretty good move. You know, it's not necessarily like the town of Frankenstein, right? I think at one point Dracula says like, I got you this castle to work in. It's still Dracula's castle technically, but like, I think there was some line where he's like, come work here. Like I let him do his business here or like I build his machine and do his experiments here. If you wanted to get really technical about it, you could probably make the argument, like you said, that this isn't Frankenstein's castle, but it is where Frankenstein is currently doing his experiments. And to have it be in Transylvania is totally fine. If I have to take issue with one thing, it does feel like the Transylvania we see in this sequence coming up, to me, doesn't really feel like it's the same town that we saw at the beginning of the movie with the windmill. No, it's only a year later. I mean, it's still got that Undertaker kind of like running thing. You know, the really weird Rocky Horror looking guy. (laughs) So that sort of visual continuity kind of bothers me a little bit. It does feel like a separate town. But yeah, I don't I don't mind that they got Frankenstein in Transylvania. The town folks at least feel the same to me because like they were going to take out the monsters in the opening. And like later, I believe, don't they like they try and at least fight some some stuff off. But we're about to have an action sequence. But before we do that, one important thing that we do learn as Van Helsing and Carl are making casual conversation about Van Helsing, like having no memory of his past. And this is where he he mentions that like he remembers fighting the Romans in 73 AD. And Carl points out like that was like 400 years ago. And he's like, yeah, well, you asked, you know, and they just sort of throw it away kind of cool yeah and they're gonna keep doing that when he meets dracula later dracula's he's gonna be like i know you and and van helsing's like what are you talking about he's like it's a story for another time right. <laughs> yeah they keep dangling that carrot another thing that we learn here this is a vampire rule that we have seen in other things if you kill a vampire you also kill anything that that vampire has created, you know? So so in this case, it'll kill all of the other vampires. It'll kill his children. You kill the guy at the top and it'll kill everything down the family tree. This is a pretty crazy action sequence in the town square. Yeah, it just kind of like happened. They have Van Helsing meet Anna. They're about to throw down. Like all great hero alliances, they start as enemies. She's about to throw down with Van Helsing, but then Dracula's brides show up and it turns into a whole action sequence. Not going to touch on every bit of this, but I did think it was a fun sequence. Yeah, yeah. I have one or two key notes. The first thing is I felt like this action sequence actually did a really good job of kind of knowing its pace, taking some beats, speeding up, slowing down, doing some exposition. Like I like how it kind of stops and the brides know Anna. They're like, oh, it's you again and all this, right? And they're like, we really think you're going to get us this time? And she's like, oh, I hate you. Can't wait to kill you. I don't want to say bitches. There's that. That's kind of fun in the middle of the fight. And then you have Van Helsing protecting all the town folks and, and like showing, you know, he's on their side. I felt like that was well done. The thing that always bothers me with all of this heavy morphing that we have with the brides is like, if you're going to do so much CGI, can you not morph their clothes to become their skin? Like, unless you're the dude from Deep Space Nine who like literally becomes a puddle. Yeah, that's one thing. But just have them wearing their clothes. Like, it doesn't make it any more provocative or not having them be these naked, ghastly, white 
vampire brides. Even though I do think the design of the brides really cool is more of like a banshee thing going on. It just that always kind of takes me out of anything. Like because I I appreciate when we see the werewolf transformation in this. He's like clawing his own skin off. Yes. Like come out underneath. That was pretty well thought out, and that gives you a reason why he doesn't have any clothes on and so forth. So they do it with Dracula too. You know, like his coat becomes his wing. Right. And it's like, huh? So those little things I wish were thought through a little better. I think they switch back and forth too many times because the CG is not as great as it is today. I mean, it's, again, not the film's fault, but if they had just switched them into their like monster form and just kept them that way, it wouldn't have bothered me so much, but they keep switching them back and forth from human form to like bat monster form and it's distracting, right? That's your point. Yeah. The clothing, it wasn't one of my notes, but I definitely feel you on that. That's such just like a small personal thing. Like I can't imagine that bothering many people. Sure. <laughs> A couple moments that stood out to me for different reasons. I love the gag with the cow getting tossed through the side of that house. Yeah. I love that we see it after the fight. It's still alive. It's okay. But like maybe my favorite moment in the entire fight sequence is the moment where Carl throws the holy water. The one bride grabs it in the midair, tosses it down the well. And then Van Helsing notices the font of holy water outside of that church. That race where he grabs the crossbow, dips it in the holy water, turns around and just launches like an entire clip into this vampire. I loved that moment. I thought that was a super fun, well-choreographed sequence. Yeah, I thought that was fun too. That's cool. I had that nice slow-mo at the end and she's like coming right at the screen. And this is more a hallmark of early 2000s action than a complaint. But like, how many arrows did Van Helsing have? His accuracy is for shit and he's just shooting as many arrows as he can in the right direction it's a new toy he's never played with it before so he's just (laughs) getting the hang of it all i suppose i was just like man he's just shooting as many arrows as possible how are you supposed to aim with that thing i don't know it was just like excessive action in that moment van helsing i wrote it down kills the blonde bride of the three and that is marishka dracula can feel that all the way back at his castle i thought that was a fun detail oh yeah it calls off the rest of them like they're about to eat anna with their crazy long jaw extension things like that was pretty freaky where they like half transform I guess like that was cool and then their sister bride gets killed and they kind of freak out and fly away right so now we get a scene with Dracula and he's pissed this scene I'm just going to talk about this one detail because I do think that this is kind of an interesting thing to do with Dracula. He goes on like a little bit of a tangent about how he has this inability to feel emotion. You know, he doesn't have a heart. He's dead. And like the toll that takes on him is not insignificant, which I thought was cool. A nice bit of acting from uh, Richard Roxborough. I always felt like Dracula knew he was bad but this dracula is like why do they call me a villain like we only eat as much as we need but you know you're planning to like hatch your kids and eat everybody this dracula is very different and very funny than i think like previous draculas that we've encountered it's an interesting portrayal i thought the scene was funny because it starts with him coming out of his ice casket walking on the ceiling flipping down to the floor and then going back into his ice casket i think this is true of many things in the movie and i want to say steven summer said this on the commentary it's somewhere on there a lot of times he made the decision for characters to do the thing that was cool versus the thing that like would be the logical thing to do and that's definitely true in that sequence like dracula just walking on the ceiling for no reason i guess that's fine 
but I think there's like no reason why these characters need to be upside down walking on the ceiling. It just looks cool. I think it goes to show like what kind of movie we're in at this point, you know, because this is just a, a conversation he could have had on the floor. But because he's Dracula and he can walk on the ceiling, like let's do break in two like let's have him walk on the wall like (laughs) but like as a character like i don't feel like dracula would just kind of like do that because he could you know it's not like he's hanging out on the wall yeah this dracula is definitely much more the monster dracula than the man he's the least sexy dracula we've seen so far he's an obvious monster yeah the bat monster yeah yeah probably not going to be in my top five draculas but i do like how this dracula fits into the tone of this movie if you were to try to put lugosi in here or frank langella it would be a complete mismatch but richard roxborough chewing scenery is exactly what this movie wants yeah no he knows what movie he's in i may not like it but he knows so back in transylvania van helsing and anna i guess decide that they are sort of uneasy allies and this is where van helsing knocks her unconscious before she can run off on her own he has to keep her alive but this was a very confusing sequence to me they're gonna team up they're at her house she's like here's the painting look it's missing a piece he doesn't stop to think like oh i've got that missing piece right here in my pocket but like look at all the weapons like let's go kick some ass They're like all right we're gonna go kick some ass and then he like knocks her out she wakes up in a bed and we're gonna get a sequence where the werewolf is stalking her okay which is her brother like her brother comes i guess he's supposed to just spy on things now the movie sets it up to be like van helsing knocked her out to use her as bait to get her brother to come to the house however he didn't because how could he have known that the brother was the werewolf and that this would work you know and when the when the werewolf shows up he's like super surprised like i was like where's van helsing like i thought he knocked her out to go take off without her but yeah in like a seemingly empty house the werewolf attacks and he comes running to help it felt like there was some stuff going on in the edit here yeah it feels like a scene was cut out that would explain how you got from a to b i really don't understand how anna ended up waking up in a house by herself being stalked by a werewolf if the idea was to keep her safe i'm as confused as you are but we do get that really cool werewolf transition that you were referring to where like Velkin's ripping through his skin, which is super cool. Yeah, that was awesome. Anna mentions that she believes Dracula has a cure for his lycanthropy. Now it becomes a movie where like Van Helsing is going to go try and kill Dracula and Anna is going to try and save her brother by getting whatever werewolf cure Dracula has. It feels like such a throwaway line to be like, now that my brother's a vampire, like I I need to go find the supposed cure that only Dracula has that might be in one of his castles. Like, it's so crazy. Plus, it also says, like, if there's a cure out there, like, any of these characters can be werewolves. Get ready, because Van Helsing's going to become a werewolf. It's just so bizarre. It just feels like we got to, like, halfway through the movie, and they're like, oh, by the way, like, there's a werewolf cure. I don't know if you can do that. Yeah, somebody tell Larry Talbot there's a cure for uh, his werewolf affliction. It just raises, like, they keep raising so many questions. So many, like, it feels like it should have been a TV show. I mean, I think eventually there was a Van Helsing, not based on this, but Van Helsing went on to be, like, successful TV shows as a concept. There's, like, female Van Helsings and things like that. But, like, this movie is just, just, like, introducing stuff, like, so late in the game that's going to become so pivotal. It's hard to keep up with sometimes. 
100%. This is one of those things, okay, we're going to sort of change this rule. Now we've got a werewolf cure, so we got to go find that. There's so many plates that are going to be spinning by the end of this movie that I don't know how they kept all of them up. I don't know that they did. After this sequence, we go back to Castle Frankenstein. Dracula and Igor are hard at work on reproducing the work of Victor Frankenstein. This is where Velkin learns that Dracula was, was experimenting on his father so his yeah. father who went missing 12 months ago he's now a corpse this is gonna raise questions later like right now i don't know what's going on because we don't know the purpose of the machine but if i can just skip ahead a, a, just a tiny bit just to explain a few things dracula has this machine that he needs to use like a life force to power in order to bring his children alive and stay alive like they're born dead and he needs to keep them alive the idea is to use frankenstein's monster like he's the key he's got all the life running through him so he can charge all of these babies to live forever but in the meantime dracula is just like using different types of supernatural beings like i understand the werewolf but what is the gypsy king power running through this guy's veins it feels like he just wanted to roast this dude for aggravating him all these years of trying to hunt him down i don't think the who of it was necessarily all that important it was just the body he had on hand that's how i read it but you, you mentioned it so i want to sort of address it i was trying to figure out why dracula would need to go through all this trouble to give his offspring life is this how vampire reproduction works they can create offspring but they can't give them like quote unquote like unnatural life they all seem to be stillborn or still unborn there's nothing gestating inside of the egg or the pod but you can sort of run a charge through it and frankenstein bring it to life like frankenstein's monster uh, so i think dracula's idea is like oh well you brought a man back to life that's the technology I'll use to bring my my vampire creatures, my pygmy vampire babies <laughs> to life. My thing I don't understand is why do you need Frankenstein's monster? He's just the proof that the machine works. You just rebuild the machine and you hook it up to all the babies and then you hit the button. Like, I don't know why it needs to run its power through the Frankenstein monster or through anything for that matter. You know, it should just be the energy of the lightning that did it all. But, you know, yeah. we're talking it out. This is where the movie kind of falls apart for me in, from a narrative point of view. I mean, I guess I never really thought about it. I don't know that I've ever seen a movie other than this where vampires reproduce. No, because all you do is like you go out and you bite more people. Right. Like, that's how you reproduce. Like right. that's the concept. If you want a baby, you're kind of shit out of luck. Like if you saw Interview with the Vampire, like you don't turn a kid. Right. Like if you saw, like I think in what we do in the shadows, the show, like one of the vampires got reprimanded for turning a baby. The baby vampires like on the council. It's too bad. You shouldn't have been a vampire. But if you want tons of little creatures and stuff to call your own, go turn a bunch of children. You know, you're evil. You're an evil vampire monster. Like, go do that and you'll have kids forever. If that what you want is hundreds and hundreds of like six-year-olds for eternity, good luck. The whole idea of vampires being able to reproduce. I couldn't understand why he would need Frankenstein's work to give them life. But I mean, you make good points. 
I don't think the movie is equipped to explain any of this, though. I don't think it's interested in explaining how this works. It's just, okay, he has dead children and the electricity needs to bring it back to life. And we need the Frankenstein monster because this is a universal monster movie. And if we don't have it, then it won't be as fun. I think that's really ultimately what it comes down to, right? I don't love the logic of this movie. Me neither. And to be quite honest, I'm not really thinking too hard about it as we go along. Like, let's just keep going and like, let's hunt some more monsters and do some more cool stuff. A couple things happen after this. Velkin becomes the next test subject, but he morphs back into a werewolf, escapes, begins terrorizing the village. Van Helsing and Anna have made their way into the castle. He stakes Dracula with that giant silver stake that he has. It's like a telescoping stake, but it doesn't kill him because it takes more than that to kill Dracula. Actually, no, Anna at one point says, I think later in the movie, nobody knows how to kill Dracula. Stephen Summers' reason for this was that because it's Dracula, we can't just simply stake him. That's why the cross doesn't work either. Man, what turns out to really be what kills Dracula is so convoluted. Yeah. And it happens by luck, right? right? If I'm not mistaken, only a werewolf can kill Dracula, but it has to be before the end of the full moon of his full transformation because after that dracula can control werewolves right with his mind and stuff so therefore that's why he's never been killed because he's always been able to mind control all the werewolves because he's gotten to them after their first transformation but like here comes van helsing at the end as a werewolf and it's like all right we gotta like sort of fight him off until the full moon's done then i can take control right like that's what it feels like this little race against time where he only has a certain amount of time as a werewolf to kill dracula but I also felt like only Van Helsing wolf can kill Dracula. Like <laughs> some kind of weird connection between the two where Were Helsing has to be the guy to become the werewolf. And it's like that happens to him in the movie just by like coincidence. You know, if it was like, I've got to figure out a way to become a werewolf for two days so I could kill Dracula and then turn back. Cool. Just say that. This is the first time we get mentioned that Dracula knew Van Helsing like 400 years ago. That is wild that Van Helsing is immortal, like, or stopped aging. How? Like, did he, is this another Hugh Jackman character from the Fountain of Youth? Is this the same character from that Aronofsky movie who drank from the Fountain of Youth and became a tree and like he has a mortal life? Like, I don't. And, and the, the, the real groaner is that Count Dracula is like a story for another day. It's like, no, dude, just tell him. We're going to keep dangling that carrot. Steven Summers loves dudes who belong to secret societies that can't remember. This is two in a row. And both movies have a telescoping stake thing. Also in this scene, Dracula manages to harness the lightning. It does give life to the offspring who are located in the bowels of that castle. But very quickly, they start to like explode, right? Like it doesn't take. So it gives them life briefly, but they can't sustain it. And they all just start exploding as they're terrorizing the neighborhood. They're like little gargoyle. I mean, he took pygmy mummies and just said vampire children. There's a fun action scene where Van Helsing and Anna zipline to safety. From there, they fall through what were the ruins of the windmill. We don't know that yet, but that's what happens. They fall through into this underground cavern. I liked how during the very short kind of feeding frenzy that the babies had while they were briefly alive, the friar, not a monk, he's a friar, friar. uh, he like... Like has his little action scene and he saves that woman and for the second time there's like the friar joke at first van helsen's like i didn't know you could curse he's like i'm 
not a monk yet. He, so he's like, God damn it, and shit, <laughs> fuck, and all this stuff. But then the lady's like, oh, you saved me. Like, how can I ever repay you? And he kind of like whispers in her ear, and she's like, you're allowed to do that? And he's like, I'm a friar. I'm not a monk. And she's like, let's get it on. <laughs> Great work from David Wenham in those yeah. sequences. Love it. He just perfect comedic timing. Speaking of Carl. We cut away from Van Helsing and Anna to Carl, who has this sort of, what's the word? Like all these other like little nuggets that Steven Summers drops throughout the movie to set up mm-hmm. things that are going to pay off later. He gives Carl this scene where Carl is looking at this image, like an old painting, like a, I guess. Yeah, like a tapestry. A tapestry, yeah, yeah. Of these like two knights. And then like one turns into like a vampire, the other turns into uh, a werewolf. Oh, and he reads the old yeah. werewolf poem. It's extended. It's an extended version of the Mm -hmm. classic werewolf poem that adds a line at the end where he says, or crave another's blood when the sun goes down and his body takes to flight. So it's the same poem from the Lon Chaney movies, but it provides this alternate path where a man may also become a vampire. What's insane about this painting that comes to life and like the soldiers or the knights, they kind of like shed their armor. One becomes a vampire, one becomes a werewolf. Like this is underworld. Yeah. I'm not saying plagiarism because I saw a great Ghostbusters cartoon episode about this, like where there was a town of werewolves and a town of vampires and at the end they they attacked each other and they became like hybrids and stuff like it's not that it's an old like but it's just like this just happened like vampires and werewolves like i'm i'm also just making this connection the idea that hugh jackman the werewolf is gonna fight dracula right a vampire like it's gonna end as underworld also which just occurred to me i guess it works interesting edit to the original mythology i thought it still works for me though like i like the idea that there are these two warring tribes on the planet one's werewolves one's vampires i think that's why like i kept going back to the underworld stuff you know because it's just a very clear cut i mean i guess it's like you know it's bigotry and all that kind of thing like they should just really get along in the end but it's one of those kind of stories of like yeah they're so different they don't they don't realize like they should be you know working together so we cut back to van helsing and anna who encounter frankenstein's monster who's been hiding out down below the ruins of this windmill for what like a whole year can't believe that dracula didn't check igor didn't lead like a search party or didn't have some kind of you know detector he put a tracking device in the monster you know (laughs) like that oh that's kind of a cool idea no instead he got like an iron man arc reactor in his chest it didn't occur to me he's got he's also got that in his head too he's got one in his head yeah his head pops apart it's crazy it's like a beetlejuice action figure or something yeah i wrote that down as a note i loved that bit because they fight frankenstein's monster and then they realize oh hang on he's not evil which becomes important i love eloquent frankenstein yeah so great this is such a great interpretation i wish he was in more of the movie i hope guillermo i hope he does something closer to like this type of vibe like he doesn't have to be so poetic it doesn't have to look so fake and all this like it works for this movie but i love how he's got a mind and everything i think i know what you're saying i, I enjoyed this portrayal of the frankenstein monster yeah the creature design is kind of hit or miss right it's it's definitely a bold look it feels like a mcfarland sculpture of course you know it's just like got so much going on like every facet of it has detail i definitely feel like they were planning to make action figures and maybe they were going to have one that where the face sort of 
of tore away a little bit. But I, I, I did love that moment. That was pretty fun. He's been hiding from Dracula to keep him from succeeding. He is, for some reason, the key to this experiment. Yeah, this is where we get all this stuff about the machine and him being the key and they're looking for him. He's the MacGuffin. Yes, and he reveals that Dracula has like thousands more children. He's got more than one castle. That's just what was in frankenstein's castle but he's got his ice planet castle too did he have some kind of line too where he was like what do you expect for a guy with three brides in 400 years yeah van helsing said something about that van helsing learns that the monster is not evil and doesn't deserve death even though that he was sort of tasked with eliminating him as well so he does have some kind of power van helsing you know like he's got this second sense where he's like i can't kill this guy he's not evil like evil created him i would have killed his doctor Frankenstein, no problem, but this thing I can't. The first thing they got to do is get him to safety. They can't stay there. So they're found by the werewolf, Velkin, presumably. So they have to book it out of town. And then there's like a whole travel sequence. It's so crazy that they're going to get him to Rome. That's the plan. Imagine him showing up in front of the Cardinal and the Cardinal being like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like now, (laughs) like, like, how do we hide this? This is supposed to be secret shit. And you're bringing him like back to S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters. Like, what? Yeah, we get a really cool like carriage chase sequence out of it. They get near Budapest from Transylvania. And then that's when Dracula's brides catch up. That's when Werewolf Velkin shows up. There's a whole jump the chasm sequence. And I really enjoyed the, uh, the bait and switch with the carriage. It totally got me. Because the carriage doesn't make it across the chasm. The horses make it. The, the carriage falls down into the chasm. Whichever bride it is who's in that scene goes to get it and finds that it's like full of explosives and stakes and whatnot. It's a decoy carriage. She's dead. Meanwhile, is it Van Helsing or is it Anna who's in the other carriage? Anna is in the other carriage. That's yeah. right. And that's the one with Carl and the monster. Yeah, I did not see that coming at all. You know, the idea of like, we'll do two carriages and things. Because all they really say is like, hey, we got Transylvania horses. Like they could outrun a werewolf. That's like, right. That's that's cool. I like that. And the whole thing with like Hugh Jackman on the horses and stuff, very kind of Indiana Jones at some point. I think the digital doubles good when he's hopping from horse to horse and he gets stuck in the middle and then they do the chasm jump and he kind of goes flying because of like the inertia and everything uh-huh. that was a fun little thing going on but yeah i remember the first time watching this when the carriage falls going like uh-oh they're screwed so like it even got me the first time and it's just a fun little bit of sequence i really do enjoy though when the werewolf starts jumping on top of the carriage and it catches on fire and the werewolf's just like fire like whatever like he's not singeing he's not burning or anything he's just enjoying it and becomes even scarier and kind of his claws seem to grow and his eyes glow and everything and they have to kind of abandon ship but yeah this is like a perfectly fine action sequence you know what i mean like that It felt restrained in a lot of ways. It didn't go on too long. It kind of progressed story enough. We get rid of one more of the brides. The other one steals Anna, like kidnaps Anna away. And then the three boys have to kind of like hoof it into the city. Yes. Actually, this is where the scene where Velkin dies because Van Helsing does shoot him with a silver bullet. And this is also the sequence where Van Helsing gets bitten by Velkin and gets sort of infected with the werewolf disease or whatever you want to call it. 
call it venom i think they call it right but the point is is that he's got limited time now he's on the clock i think they have like 48 hours before the next full moon yeah yeah which they're lucky it's not like that night because carl's got all the info it's good that carl's there because van helsing's like now what am i i I got bit by a werewolf like what does that mean and you know you're supposed to have like hunted what did he say he's like i've hunted warlocks and Uh wizard witches it's like but never vampires so it's good that carl's there to be like here's exactly like what's gonna happen to you they get to budapest so carl van helsing and the monster are in budapest the remaining dracula bride lets them know that they will exchange anna for the monster yeah tomorrow on halloween all hallows eve yep why are we doing halloween don't even throw that out there like that just opens up a whole other can of worms that they're not going to talk about it's dracula's ball it's going to be loaded with vampires it's a masquerade ball like that's not uncommon for weirdo rich people to do (laughs) you know like throw a masquerade ball it doesn't need to be halloween it could just be you know for him just to grandstand and all that shit uh it just felt like one of those moments of like overcomplicating the whole story again and then I also love when they're making the deal and uh, she's like, we want to trade Anna for the creature. And Van Helsing's like, okay, but somewhere in public. <laughs> like he immediately is like, we're going to do this. And the yes. creature kind of looks at him like, dude. Yeah. And I love that his reaction is just like, you know what? I hope your enemies will pursue you just as passionately or some shit like that. Yeah. Basically like if I die, I hope you die soon. So they knock out the monster and hide him in a cemetery. Yeah. in like a crypt. Mausoleum. Right. Yeah, yeah. And they go to Dracula's Halloween ball. As I said, Van Helsing has 48 hours to find the cure for his werewolf curse. He has until the final stroke of midnight. Yeah, he's got two days, pretty much, they said. He'll turn into the werewolf, but even then it's not too late. He has to be cured by the final stroke of midnight or something. And he'll, and he'll have like partial fits until then. Well, he'll do like minor transformations or getting little boosts of power, like somehow channeling, you know, I just need to jump over this thing. Werewolf power. Activate. <laughs> of course, we know neither Van Helsing nor Dracula intend to actually make that trade. Dracula at the ball, he's actively looking for a new bride. Anna is his captive. Next is like the rescue sequence. It feels like an old con man gag where Carl creates the diversion, sets Dracula on fire. Van Helsing tries to swoop across the room to grab Anna. But before they can get away safely, Igor comes in with the Frankenstein monster in shackles. Yeah, they found them. Easy to find. They hit him in a graveyard, like on the property of the castle. They're going like it seemed like it was right there. And then we see like someone also was watching them, too, when they were hiding Frankenstein. As they're walking out of the cemetery, the camera tilts down to a, a grave and it opens up and a pan comes out. It's Igor, right? Hiding in the. Yeah, yeah. But one of the main bummers with this sequence is that I wish we were here longer. Like if we're going here, all of this work for like five minutes, you know, this huge dance sequence and the swinging through the ballroom and i kind of i really like the reflection shot that was cool where oh, that was dancing cool. and then the reflection and it feels like anna's you know losing her senses and like might actually take him up on his offer or whatever like not willingly but you know i didn't want to go to dracula's halloween ball but now that i'm here like i wish we could stay here a bit longer and like get into like more hijinks and antics like i wish we could see kind of a chase through the hallways with the creature and then see him get caught like all you know what i mean like we get a little bit of action but it just seems like we have all these sets and they race through these sequences sometimes i definitely agree with that every sequence is so kinetic 
quick and just moves so quickly that I don't think we really get time to appreciate some of the nuances, which is a shame. Yeah, the nuance is lost. Yeah. The party is full of vampires. Igor manages to get away with the Frankenstein monster in a little boat. They're like trapped on the other side of of the moat, the drawbridge and everything. And this is where Van Helsing learns that Carl is intending to kill the Frankenstein monster. It's not so much because he is evil, but because he could be used for evil. Yeah, everyone but Van Helsing wants this thing dead. Even the creature, when they met the creature, he's like, put a bullet in me. The only way to to win this movie is to take me out. And Van Helsing's like, no, 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 no. We're bringing him the rope. Now we get another information dump. This time, Carl kind of lays everything out. This sequence always spins me in circles they talk so fast this is like exposition 101 how not to do it yeah this is like the universal monster version of national treasure oh that's actually that's a great comparison you know why did it suddenly become national treasure (laughs) (laughs) you know that's so confusing it's even got a little like that scrap of paper from the beginning of the movie now it can be held up to the big tapestry and it reveals a secret entrance if the vatican just gave that little piece of paper to that family years ago it would have definitely put it on the tapestry and been like oh it's complete and then the door opens so here's the general gist let me know if i missed anything dracula was the son of Valerius the Elder. Everything started when Dracula was murdered in 1462. He made a pact with the devil when he died to become a vampire. Valerius went to Rome to seek forgiveness for creating him, and that's when that original bargain was made. But he wasn't able to kill his son, so he banished him to an icy fortress, sending him through a door from which there was no return until the devil gave him wings, I think Anna says. Yes. We don't know when he met the devil, why the devil gave him wings, why he's even involved, that he beat him in a fiddle contest and get a wish granted. Like, it's all up in the air. Since he's tied to, like, the Valeris family and stuff, his encounter with Anna is way creepier. Yes. You know, wanting to make his, like, basically super great-granddaughter his bride? Yeah. I hadn't even thought about it, really, because I was so busy trying to make sure I got the details right for this, that that particular detail just kind of went right over my head. But what's even a bigger revelation to me with this sequence and talking through it is, like, that's the Dracula movie. The Dracula movie doesn't involve Van Helsing. It's Kate Beckinsale hunting Dracula. Uh, You know, like, that's how it feels to me. And then they're like, let's write Van Helsing into that movie because it just feels like that's the story here. You know, that's like everything that's important. All of the turning points seem to be part of her story, not his. And it's just like they dropped him in the middle of her movie. I would have been fine with Anna hunting Dracula as the new Dracula movie and have Van Helsing hunting werewolves the whole time in his own movie. We have what we have. I'm just trying to sort of organize it in my mind a little better as to how we could have possibly gotten here or done it other ways or stuff. I'm cool with Van Helsing kind of being a guest in somebody else's story, you know, because essentially at the end of the day, this is his job. He is hired to go do this job. And of course, he's just coming into the story in progress. Also, you know, if you're going to build a franchise around this character, he has to remain flexible. I think where this thing goes, it's not the reason, but like one of the ways this movie goes a little bit south is by making him so intimately connected with the villain, with Dracula. What we learn that Van Helsing is the guy who killed Dracula before he right originally right and so like that's one connection too many we're gonna find out he's connected to anna i'm just saying in terms of screenwriting the logic is like you don't connect everybody 
through the family tree. Like one is okay. Like he's connected to Anna. All right. They're distant relatives. Like you don't also have Van Helsing be the guy who was there too. It just feels like he has a different part of the story to tell. Like he should be involved differently. Yeah. Suddenly this big world that we're playing around in feels very small because everybody knows each other. Now I really need to know how Van Helsing lost his memory. Was it one of the old Valerius gypsy curses put on him or somehow? Did he get in the way and was put out of the way because it's not his mission? It just brings up too many new questions we're not going to answer tonight. So. Right. I-, I imagine that all would have been expanded upon in a sequel. You know, we'll never know. Okay. So we also know that Valerius, after you know not being able to kill Dracula, he left clues so that future generations could do it for him. And and then we get that scrap of paper. Don't leave clues. Just make it obvious. Keep a journal. Then we get a treasure hunt for your descendants. Just be like, here it is. Here's, here's step one, two, and three. Behind that tapestry is a mirror that is sort of like a portal into wherever Dracula's hidden ice fortress is. Yeah. So is this like an extra dimensional realm? Or is this just they're teleported somewhere else on the planet, like Mount Everest or, or something like that, right? The North Pole or some shit? Yeah, that's that's how I read it. Like they haven't gone to another planet or some other nether realm. I think this is still on terra firma. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was like supposed to be hell and like that's how we met the devil because like, you know, a lot of the pictures of hell is freezing. It's frozen sure. and stuff. So like I, I didn't know if they were going to go there. He looks very much like the devil at the end of the movie. I can't speak to that specifically because I hadn't heard anything about it or read anything about it, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was what was going through Stephen Summers' mind. Like instead right. of putting Dracula where you expect him to be, let's put him in like a frozen tundra someplace, which I do kind of like. I do like that Dracula has like an ice fortress. Yeah, there's something fun about like, this is this is a supernatural addition that I don't mind. I like, I kind of, I'm, do- I'm down with like Alice in Wonderland, walk through a, a mirror, a mirrors or portals. Like there's like a literary kind of, precedent for mirrors being passageways and all that kind of stuff so like i think visually it's always a cool effect and i could buy it especially at this point in this movie hugh jackman's about to become a werewolf walking through a mirror is the least of my issues (laughs) from here to the end things are kind of going to get stacked on top of each other Uh, i'll try to keep things as straight as possible here so they travel to dracula's castle they apprehend igor they find the frankenstein monster sort of in a block of ice which i thought was a pretty cool visual yeah that's wild that's wild that like they froze him to contain it yeah reminded me of one of the times don't they find him frozen in ice in one of the sequels of the original like son of frankenstein yeah in frankenstein meets the wolfman that's find him in the ruins of the castle but He's like frozen in ice. They have to thaw him out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The monster confirms that Dracula has a cure for lycanthropy. And then Carl also confirms that the reason why he would have a cure for lycanthropy is because werewolves are the only things that can kill him. Sure. A little late in the game to be introducing new rules. It's all very convenient. So like my issue isn't that like that's the point. My issue is how this information comes out in the movie. You know what I mean? It's more about how we're exposed to the information as opposed to what the information actually is. There's just such a clumsiness at times. Some things feel so well planned and other things just feel like dropped in there at the last second. That's the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, It's a lot of exposition, but they sprinkled it out like throughout the whole movie. So now suddenly we have this rule that we need to to understand because yeah, what's the about? difference if we knew that at the beginning or the end you know he was gonna get turned into a werewolf anyway right set it all up when you're setting up the universe when you're setting up the movie yeah and i think if you can't do the majority of it at the beginning then you have too much yeah 
That's right. Just don't do it. Here's the deal. Van Helsing has to kill Dracula and cure himself before the final stroke of midnight. Dracula begins his experiment to bring his children to life now that he has the Frankenstein monster to do so. Igor takes Anna and Carl to the werewolf cure. This, I kind of like the visual of this. It's like this big syringe filled with red liquid suspended in a viscous solution. And uh, I love that Carl's like real hesitant to like stick his hand in the viscous solution. It reminded me of like the rose from Beauty and the Beast. It's like sitting in its own room displayed in the center, just like don't touch. So while they're in that room, Igor, of course, double crosses them, locks them in the room. Dracula's bride, his final bride comes in and that becomes like a whole sequence. Yeah. The viscous material turns out to be like acid, like like some kind of contained orb of acid that isn't harming the needle or the syringe, but it, it horribly scars the bride of Dracula. Yes, so it does that and it tears a big hole in the gate, right? Which leads to Carl fighting Igor, who's got this giant electric cattle prod. And there's like this huge storm going on and they're on that like real rickety kind of bridge, right? Because like they're in like one part of the castle while Van Helsing's in the other. And there's like this super long couple football fields length, like this old bridge made of made of stone and it's like crumbling and it's got this this made me think of castlevania a lot because it's got like those fire things that you would hit with your whip and they would turn into hearts or something like there's tons of those in the sequence yep. it's just like kind of riveting stuff you know I, i'm actually kind of digging a lot of this stuff at the end here we're all here together at the climax, you know, for better or worse. And I think it's p- actually playing out pretty well for the way the board has sort of been set up. Yeah, I sort of lose track of Van Helsing here. He is trying to rescue the Frankenstein monster. He's like unshackling him. I love that moment where he's like, you know, this is going to hurt. And he's like, I'm accustomed to pain. It's a great, great moment. I wish he had said life is pain. <laughs> well, he at one point says friend. Forget at which point that was, but he did get a chance to say friend i wish he had said it in like several languages that would have been hilarious like amigo so while the monster is now free van helsing becomes tangled with dracula for their showdown first of all this is like a rematch i like that about certain movies where like they met in the middle of the movie and they didn't really fight but like for lack of a better term like van helsing like kind of lost you know like Mm -hmm. in a matter of speaking and now it's like kind of a rematch like i guess the first one was more of a battle of wit of wit and will but like this one is going to be like a wrestling match yes igor is chasing carl across the bridge while that's happening lightning strikes the frankenstein monster which animates dracula's kids the monster escapes and then like swings down the side of the castle from a giant rope or something i think it's one of like the electricity cords or like one of the wires He comes swinging by, knocks Igor off the bridge, and then the monster and Carl have a moment. Carl is given an opportunity to save the monster's life. He hesitates for a second, thinking, you're not supposed to live. But the monster chooses life in that moment which i think is it's a powerful moment he helps the monster he sort of like unhooks that cord and the monster swings through the window into the room where anna and the final bride are he starts fighting with the bride to give anna time to get away while that's happening van helsing exposed to the full moon turns into a werewolf like it just kind of becomes like this cartoony mix like especially dracula like i feel like they over designed him he should have had maybe two or three different looks like one of them could have been the big bat 
dude. But at this moment, I think he needed to look a little more streamlined. Like it's kind of hard to tell what exactly is going on sometimes. Yeah, I definitely agree. And also it doesn't help that he's changing back and forth. You know, we talked about that earlier. That is the main thing. I'm glad you said that again, because bringing that up again, because that is like one of the main issues. It's like, it's just too much back and forth. I think my eye isn't getting used to what the Dracula monster looks like long enough, right? He's not on screen long enough for me to kind of get a good gauge of him. And then he's turned back and then he's back again. And then he's back. So it's like my brain is constantly trying to like focus on him. Well, I think it's because they want Dracula to speak through this sequence. You know, it's a monologue like a villain. Just let him speak as a monster. It's the end of the movie. Like you're telling me he can't talk in that form. I guess he has never threatened anybody as that big bat dude before. Like I bet he sounds amazing with that voice. You know, give him a screech, give him something a little more high pitch or something. It's a mess. I'm trying to make sure I keep it all straight in my head and I'm having a lot of trouble. I mean, this is The Mummy Returns all over again. Worse, actually, because I I still feel like I don't fully comprehend everything that's happening here. But Carl has the werewolf cure. He tosses that needle to Anna. You are drastically understating this particular moment. I had been waiting to talk about this moment the whole show. Okay, Carl is like in the middle of the bridge. It's storming out. Yes. Anna grabs one of the cables and she's in the window of one of the towers. And she's going to swing from her tower to the window where Van Helsing is. And it's like a long uh-huh. way. It's like, like I said, like multiple football fields, like 500 yards, that bridge. Why are you building such big castles? <laughs> and she's swinging down. And in the middle of the swing, she's like, Carl, chuck me the syringe. <laughs> and, and Carl's just like, you got it. And he just pure luck just tosses it at the perfect moment. And she grabs it. It doesn't even like stab her. She grabs it like perfectly as she's swinging. Like this is some, this is some crazy like this is only in movies you know like this is at the end this movie might have won me over with this moment because i'm just like bravo doing whatever the hell you need to do to get character a to character b (laughs) making up this completely insane moment like it i get it you know it needs to be thrilling and exciting but it is so cliche i'm not saying anything else in this movie would actually happen but like for some reason i couldn't suspend my disbelief in that moment i was just just have her run across the bridge like it was wild though i was like i can't believe she caught that perfectly it's classic Classic action movie kind of nonsense, which we've said many things about Steven Summers uh, up to this point. I will say this in his defense. He is having a really good time making this movie. I can feel his enthusiasm in every frame. And you know what? I think there's something to be said for that. I think, you know, he loves this material. He's having a blast. And it does translate to a degree because I don't think this movie, it's a lot of things, but it's not boring. No, 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 no. There is an energy to this that it's like, even if you don't like what you're seeing, you keep watching. Yeah. There is a certain kind of enthusiasm behind it. At the risk of making a very unflattering comparison, and I'm not going to mean it the way it sounds, but we think about guys like Ed Wood, who famously, like, not great filmmakers, but a guy like Ed Wood, you ever watch an Ed Wood movie? I don't think his movies are bad in the way that you would think they would be. His enthusiasm comes through when I watch those movies. So I have a good time watching Ed Wood movies. And I think the same, I mean, it's not a horror movie, but I think of the same of like The Room, Tommy Wiseau. Also, that guy clearly didn't know what he was doing, but that movie works on such a level that it shouldn't work. It defies logic. It's because his enthusiasm is on the screen the entire time. While I don't think Stephen Summers is to that degree, it 
I don't mean it to be such a, an unflattering comparison. What I mean is his enthusiasm also is very present. And so yes. I think that's worth something. I think yeah. that, that has a value to it. And it gives us moments like this where Kate Beckinsale can swing across a 500 yard chasm, catch a syringe in midair. And I would say in some ways, this is why we go to the movies to see shit like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After she gets the syringe, Anna's attacked by our bride, but Carl tosses her the stake end of the bride. Now we're back with Van Helsing. This is an interesting new werewolf thing I've never seen before. A cloud passes across the moon. He turns back into a man. If I'm not mistaken, shirtless Hugh Jackman this time? Shirtless Hugh Jackman. Again, like, just let him talk as, as a werewolf. Like, I think that's why they're doing it, right? Because they want him to be able to talk and have a conversation and stuff. Yeah, because that gets back into an argument, not an argument, but like a discussion we have where it's like, well, it, you know, the moon, technically the moon is always full. But like, you know, what time of day, this and that. Yeah, up until now, it's never been about exposure to the moon. It's just full moon, moon's out, turn into a werewolf. Yeah. So, yeah, this is where we learn that it was Van Helsing who killed Dracula all those years ago. The moon exposed again. Van Helsing changes back, kills Dracula. And then, like, immediately, Anna is in the room. He attacks her. Yeah, they have this whole situation where it's like, first he bites the throat of dracula like rips his throat out and then he starts like deflating this like black goo comes out of him and he's freaking out and everything i thought that was actually kind of a fun animation of dracula realizing he's about to die he's like oh shit it's happening and then she runs into the room she's got this syringe so they kind of dive at each other van helsing and anna they like attack each other because van helsing's out of his mind you know he's a werewolf and i think then that's when carl bursts in and sees van helsing the werewolf holding anna in his arms and she's dead but she has stabbed him with the antidote before she died they like sort of attack each other right werewolf van helsing and anna and in that struggle anna is killed and before carl can i guess stake him with that silver stake he turns around grabs his wrist and we see the syringe has been injected into his abdomen he turns back into van helsing but anna is dead he doesn't just turn back into Van Helsing, though. He lets out this howl as the wolf. And as he's like shedding his fur and turning back into Hugh Jackman, it goes from a howl to the word no. It is like one of the greatest no's in action movies. You know, this is, goes from like a wolf howl into that. It was like, oh, no. That was actually brilliant. One note I discovered about this particular scene. So Stephen Summers uh, said on the commentary that he sort of envisioned into this as like looking like the cover of a paranormal romance novel oh yeah you've got the beautiful woman on the the chaise lounge and you've got a big werewolf kind of a beauty and the beast kind of image which i thought was kind of a funny source for inspiration for this final sequence but it works so i mean that's essentially the end of the movie we get a little bit of an epilogue we get like no more dialogue for the rest of the movie like it's really strange how after that there's like no more talking really there's like very 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 little after a movie that couldn't really shut its mouth <laughs> right yeah we don't get anything like so then he'll sing like oh we off to another adventure like where do we go to next and all this stuff we get them over her grave we get the the frankenstein's monster like this blew my mind he's on like a raft and yeah. he's 
paddling out into the middle of the ocean give this boy a boat that blew my mind and then they're kind of like looking off into the sunset and you see that anna and her family are like in the clouds like mustafa like they've made it out of purgatory yeah so we know that the valerius family will uh, ascend into heaven after all presumably they were going to have a sequel and answer a bunch of the questions that they set up in this movie but I don't think we're ever going to find out. No, it's kind of crazy how it almost ends on the same beat as the Tom Cruise mommy will, where it's like he's got his partner and they're like, all right, where to now? And it's like, I guess we're going to figure out who we are and where we belong. Yeah, I guess I should ask um, any final thoughts on Van Helsing. I feel like we've said as much as we could possibly say about this one. Yeah, you know, I know it might have come down a little hard on it, but the movie is a lot like there is just a lot especially from what i'm used to you know uh even when it comes to fun goofy action stuff i don't usually go this far it just seems like out of control at times there's just entirely too much going on for me in this movie now that's not to say like it doesn't have some pros like we talked about it tonight. I tried to talk about as much as I could what I liked about the movie, you know, but you can't help bringing up things that also don't work for you. Like, if you do like this movie out there, like, I'm sorry, like, if I was too critical about it. And, you know, I know it's just supposed to be a lot of light popcorn entertainment, but we here at the Monsters that made us kind of take some of this a little too seriously sometimes, <laughs> you know, like, that's just why we're a podcast about the Universal Monsters. And so I feel like I got most of what I was thinking about out in this episode. I don't know that I necessarily have to go back to this anytime soon. And it's not to say that it's the worst thing in the world. It's just not entirely competent. You know, for monster stuff, I just think overall vibe way too lighthearted. You know, they wanted to push more of the horror elements. They should have, but they kept constantly pulling back, cracking jokes and budding romances and things like that. And so like, it was a lot. I hope we don't have to digest this much <laughs> with any other films anytime soon. I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm kind of looking forward to a straight to video Scorpion King sequel at this point. Well, I don't think you were overly harsh. I don't think we were overly harsh. You know, I mean, okay. I think you're right in that we take these things a little more seriously than most, but that's, you know, why we do this podcast. I think that's probably why, you know, we have people who listen to this show. That's what they're interested in is, is people who are going to overly examine and, and whatnot. We always try to be kind to the movies that we, we watch. I mean, we've watched plenty of movies that are probably not very good, but, you know, it's they're about monsters. And we at the end of the day, we love monsters. So we're always trying yeah. to find the stuff we enjoy and 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 you know what and i'm gonna say that this movie conceptually is great you know i want to emphasize that i think that this is a great idea for a movie if you're gonna remake something let's remake van helsing and do it right plan out like three or four of these before you even you know start one yeah you know i think steven summers he's one of us he's a guy who grew up loving monster movies as a kid and he got the opportunity to make a few of them his enthusiasm is front and center in this movie i just think that its main problem is that like nobody ever told him no at any point during the development of this script you know they i think they just assumed that whatever was successful with the mummy 
is going to happen with this one too, because they hired the same guy to, to write it and direct it. You know, I, I would love to have known what this movie would have turned into if Sean Daniel and James Jacks were involved in this, but they're not here. I feel like they were probably a big part of restraining Stephen Summers with the mummy mm-hmm. films. Like you, I, I don't know if I'll revisit this anytime soon. It, as much as there's stuff in it that I enjoy, it, it is a pretty top heavy movie with a lot of stuff going on, a lot of moving parts. And ultimately, I kind of feel exhausted watching it. And now that we've talked about it for so long, I'm ready to put it away and maybe revisit it in another decade or so. Sounds good to me. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. But don't worry, we'll be back Friday, March 29th for the epic conclusion to the Mummy trilogy, The Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Oh, man, we have to watch that before we get to the... Oh, God. (laughs) I I didn't want to burst your bubble. I also am kind of looking forward to a straight-to-DVD Scorpion (laughs) King movie, but we have to get through the final Rick O'Connell Mummy movie. Just a little teaser it turns out i have seen this movie before i blocked it from my memory entirely but my letterbox review came up recently and i have to read that next episode it is hilarious i totally forgot watching this movie and logging in on letterbox but i can't wait to read that awesome well i look forward to that in the meantime you can follow us on x aka twitter at monster made pod we're also on blue sky at monster made pod and on instagram and facebook at the monsters that made us you can follow me pretty much everywhere at dan cologne and mike where can listeners find you you can find me and all the other shows i do on cageclub.me and you can find me on twitter and instagram on the underscore Mikester. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to support the show, you can become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. And we can't forget about our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody. <laughs>